if the study is done controlled and properly, negative data is just as important as, as positive responses. And sometimes that's a little challenging for graduate students to understand that, um, you know, no differences, no differences. Well, a non-significant difference can be significant many times. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. My name is Marcia Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high health registered purebred swine in the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Lee Johnston here with us, and uh, we are excited to get his insights on many different areas. Uh, Dr. Johnston, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to connect up with you. I've seen you uh, on my screen lots of times, so now I see you again, but now I'm talking to you instead of someone else. I love it. No, really excited about some of the areas that you are working on. But uh, before that, as always, for folks that never heard of you, we have an audience that's very, um, you know, ranging across multiple countries. So what um, if you can just share with us your journeys so far? Yeah, I basically grew up on a dairy farm in western Pennsylvania, and uh, I was in a rural or urban area town and grew it up around us we milked 100 cows on nine acres and all my classmates in high school were town kids and i was the only farm boy and i knew that uh, when i got out of high school i needed to get somewhere where there's more agriculture and fortunately i got uh, i studied at penn state and did my undergraduate in animal production there and uh, that's where i was really introduced to pigs um, there was a couple, there was a mentor that worked in the swine barn at Penn State at the research farm that hired me, took a, took a chance. He says, well, you're a dairy guy, but I need some help. And, and uh, he really cultivated my interests and um, showed me a lot of possibilities in the swine industry. And so when I finished at Penn State, the hog market was fairly depressed and uh, a lot of people said they wanted to hire me, but they didn't have any money and I really didn't want to work for free. Mm-hmm. So um, I had the opportunity to take a position at Texas Tech University 
as the assistant swine herdsman in the research farm at the university. And uh, Dr. Don Orr, who uh, was on the faculty at that time, hired me and uh, provided me the opportunity to study towards my master's degree while I was there. And that was a really neat opportunity. I was, uh, for folks from the US, they would understand uh, I was a damn Yankee living in the South. So I uh, had a lot of free time on my hands and thought, well, I might as well go ahead and study. So I uh, earned my master's degree in swine nutrition uh, under Dr. Orr's uh, leadership or mentorship. And then uh, at that time, a master's degree in swine nutrition didn't do much more than a bachelor's. You had to go on for a PhD to really get the jump in position and pay. And so I had the opportunity to study at Michigan State University under Dr. Ellen Miller. And uh, Dr. Miller is one of the gurus of trace mineral nutrition and um, just a fabulous guy. And um, worked with him, did my, my PhD there, and uh, had the opportunity to do extension work there in both the 4-H program and in swine, swine industry. And, and uh, that put me in a pretty good position to come here to the University of Minnesota. And I came here in 1988. And I'm located at a research center in Western Minnesota. The University of Minnesota system has research centers around the state. And um, they have pigs here and had cattle and sheep. And I told my wife, well, we'll take a chance. We'll take, we'll go out there to the prairies of Western Minnesota and, and try it. If we don't like it, we'll take another job and go somewhere else. And now we are in 2020 and we raised our family here and, uh university done a good thing for me so it's been good super cool super cool and i mean you you guys have done a lot of work on the ddgs area and and others but let's jump in on on something that i reached out to you um uh, the main topic was around water quality um for nursery pigs it's been one area that uh we all we definitely want to learn more about uh it's it's one that you know people talk about the 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 forgotten nutrient, you know, it's super important. So what, what have you been doing on this area? Well, we were, we had some discussion with pork producers here in Minnesota and the Minnesota Pork Board uh, put in their call for proposal, wanting some work done on water quality and how that might affect performance and health of nursery pigs. Some farms were seeing some stall out pigs, pigs hard to start. Um, and after they, you know, exhausted all the possibilities to try to fix the problem, they said, well, maybe it's water quality. And so that was the genesis for the call, the research call. And it was actually on their call for proposals about two years. In the first year, we looked at it, but God, that's a real can of worms. And how would we really advance things and kind of ignored it and made some other proposals. But then when it showed up the second year, we said, well, let's try to dig into it. And we had a lot of discussions here about how to approach this and what we could do to contribute to the knowledge base. And where we arrived at was, well, there's the water quality that comes from the source, whether it be the groundwater or the the municipal water system. And then there's the water that the pig drinks. And they're not necessarily the same thing because we've got distribution systems and that they may or may not be maintained well. Um, 
and some of those types of things. So we opted to say, let's just deal with the quality of the water that's presented to the farm and see if those parameters on water make a difference to the pig in terms of their performance and health. And then if we find differences there, then we can go further through the system into the distribution system and what happens with biofilms. And the challenge is these are so site specific. So we thought about um, doing a large commercial study and looking at a various farms and say, well, why was this one have better performance than that farm and what's the water quality difference? And there's just a ton of confounding factors. And so what we decided to do was first phase, try to identify what qualities of water are out there being fed to pigs. And so we did a survey and uh, Brigitte Lazinski, the master's student uh, on this project, basically, well, she did all the legwork on this, um, to identify farms that had water analysis and maybe we asked them, do you think your water is good? Clear down to intolerable. And are you doing any treatments, those kind of things. From that survey, we identified 15 farms through the pig dense area of Minnesota to um, go to the farm, sample their water, and do an analysis on that water. We analyzed each water sample for 29 different analytes. And the idea was, let's try to find what I'll say is bad water, and then some water that we think is good water and bring those waters to our research farm here and feed those three different waters, we, we end up with three, to pigs under the same housing, the same nutrition, the same management so that we could truly test did the water make a difference. Um, so that's what we did. And we, we replumbed our nursery, set up some water tanks outside, kind of big bladders, they looked like water beds. And uh, we hauled water in from these three farms and uh, we took the water right from as close to the wellhead as we could. So it was not adulterated, contaminated, influenced by any treatment systems or any sludge in the distribution system, whatever. Um, and then we brought in pigs, wean pigs, 21 day old pigs, um, a lot of them, we had about 450 pigs on the trial. And then we measured about everything that we could think of. Of course, growth performance, you gain, feed intake, morbidity, mortality. Of course, with that smaller numbers, it's a little harder to nail that down. We did um, um, indirect digestibility estimates of the diet. We fed the same diet across all the three waters. We measured, uh, did it uh, in vivo, gut permeability test with um, sugar absorption. We uh, did some behavior, put cameras on some of them to say, well, did pigs have some aversion to one water versus the other as maybe a measure of quality? Um, we did some bleeding, just blood chemistry profiles, um, and then uh, cytokine analysis. And then we did a phago test uh, a kit to identify phagocytosis in white blood cells of the uh, of those pigs. So that's the suite of measurements we did over a six-week nursery trial. 
Uh, of course, we did a lot of water monitoring to make sure the quality didn't deteriorate in, in um, storage. Bottom line, didn't make a difference. And the waters that we've had ranged from um, like total dissolved solids on the really good water was uh, 348 parts per million, what we thought was the good word. And on the bad water was 1,500 parts per million. Uh, sulfates ranged from two parts per million to 1,120. We had quite a range there, yeah. but we could not detect, the pig didn't tell us that there was any difference in those waters. And those waters, it was, it was really hard for us to decide what is bad water. We know that there are guidelines that people, you see the same set of guidelines come up, like for total dissolved solids, kind of the, the threshold or the guideline is 3,000 3, parts per million. And for sulfates, it's 1,000 parts per million. And you see those guidelines turn up in a lot of different publications. We trace that back to like the 1970s and they were kind of derived from human standards. They haven't really been updated. And so we wondered, well, do these waters, do those guidelines still apply? Mm -hmm. But the three waters that we had did not exceed those guidelines. So maybe they weren't bad enough, so to speak, but they were reflective of what water was being fed to pigs in Minnesota. And of those 15 that we sampled to, to figure out which three we were going to select, we had some that they had softeners on it. They were treating them in the farm. Of course, we sampled before the softeners. Um, some of the farms said our water is just terrible. Sample ours and put ours in the study. And then, of course, the one said it was, you know, they had really good water. And so basically where we arrived at was that, at least within the parameters of our study, we could not determine any differences in the water within the guidelines that had been published. And so those guidelines probably still apply. And, um, you know, we'd have to call all three of the waters good because performance was the same. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. And um, did you... Did you do you have that ranging iron, for example? I don't know if, if you have that handy there or not. I can, yeah, give me a minute here. I can pull it up. Um, Just curious because I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, when you see, I don't know, you're sharing into a farm and you see the, they stay on the wall, and you're like, okay, well, maybe a lot of iron. But again, it's hard to connect that to performance sometimes, even though. I, I believe, uh, you know, when you have high iron, in theory, you'd have more bacteria proliferation and that kind of stuff. But again, that's probably true. But we did we weren't able to measure that because we did it before the water lines, the distribution system. And that's where mm. water might change. Brigitte, the student, when we were starting this study, she'd say, now, Lee, you know that the water the pig drinks out of nipple is different than what's coming out of the well. And I said, yes, I agree. And then I said to her, I said, well, do you want to run 2,500 gallons of water into a tank from that nipple in one of those pens <laughs> after the distribution system? And, you know, we agreed that wasn't practical. And then the distribution system would have variation from farm to farm. And so were you really testing the water quality or were you testing the water quality plus the maintenance of the distribution system? So that was a challenge. To answer your question on iron, 
They range from the good water, or what I call the good water, uh, 1.3 parts per million to uh, five and a half. Okay. Do you have the, and I don't recall what the tables would say, what's, what's ideal, do you know? Well, there's not really a recommend, in our tables, there wasn't recommended our level of standard. Okay. Another one that gets um, a lot of attention is uh, manganese. Mm. And those range from, um, they were all less than one part per million. We did not have any nitrate problems in our waters, any of the 15 that we sampled, no coliforms, fecal coliforms. So those kind of typical quality parameters weren't an issue. So we're not necessarily saying water quality doesn't matter, but we couldn't pick up the differences under the conditions of our trial. And within the range of waters that we had that appear to be out there, it seems like maybe it's not as big an issue as, as we might think. But then the maintenance of the distribution system certainly is important. And that could change the answer based on how well that's maintained, how clean it is, biofilms. I know when we started our trial, we replaced we replaced all the plumbing to these rooms so that we would we'd have truly test the water. Wow. But we had uh, drinko mat cups in the nursery, so there was a nipple inside of a water cup, mm. and there's a, a metal stand pipe that supplied them. So we we had to have those. So we had to clean them, and we opened them up. I was embarrassed to say we had a lot of grunge inside there that had built up over a lot of years with you know, uh, water meds and that kind of thing. So uh, we cleaned all those out too. So that we did everything we could to try to make sure we're testing the water quality and not the distribution system. Very cool. Yeah, very comprehensive study. Um, on the sulfate side of things, right? I think there's a few studies showing, hey, if you have high sulfates, eh, the pigs get a little, a little loose, but uh, no change in performance as well, right? Exactly. And there are those those studies, and it's like, well, if the pig's loose, is that really a problem? The other thing we talked about in our study was we had a big discussion at the beginning of what was our pig source going to be? Do we want high health pigs? Or do we want pigs that maybe are a little compromised or challenged? We chose the high health pigs, right or wrong. Maybe if they were health challenged pigs, you put in the sulfates on top of, maybe there's a different answer. Um, one producer asked me, so well, the diets you used were commercially industry standard diets, four phase nursery program, um, pretty good quality phase one, phase two diets. What if you tried to cheat on that and give a little more bland diet, a little uh, lower cost diet, would you get a different answer? Maybe, um, but you know, I, we talked about it and we knew whatever we picked, it probably is gonna be wrong, but you, know, you, can only, you can only test certain things. And so we were pretty pleased with the way the system worked and being able to feed three different waters side by side the quality of the water did not change over the, the six-week trial. We sampled at the beginning, the middle, and the end. Um, the water quality from the source didn't change because we had we basically had to get two shipments of water 
of each water to get through the whole trial. So, um, yeah, that's um, that's kind of the, the story there. We're not sure exactly what next steps are going to be. You could think of tons of permutations, um, but that's kind of where we stand at this point. The student just bring it just defended her thesis a couple of weeks ago, so she's trying to wrap things up and we hope to get this submitted for publication sometime soon. No, very cool study. And, and I, even when we don't find something, it's 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 meaningful, right? I mean, I remember uh, the, the lysine by energy study I did in late gestation, you know, 1,000 cells, 15,000 uh, 15, baby pigs weighed at birth. Well, turns out there was no difference uh, virtually in performance or birth weight with the exception if we, if we make them fat, you know, we have higher stillborn. Well, turns out that that's a massive conclusion for pig producers that they're going to save a lot of money. So back to, to the water quality, um, sometimes I think uh, some folks do a little bit of what I guess it's called a precautionary tale, right? What about this? What about that? What about it? Well, here's the data so far and doesn't seem that we need to worry too much so far. But but goes back to water access and, and flow, I guess, right? What, what's your thoughts there? Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, we use PQA standards for water flow. Uh, we check those waters weekly to make sure flow wasn't restricted. We had to do a little tweaking on our system. Uh, we had new pressure tanks and pumps for each water source. So um, water wasn't limiting. Um, yeah, certainly access is important. Um, and I think we had a really good session on water at the Lehman conference, the pre-conference session, and, and um, some folks there talked about access and supply. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a, a little bit different issue, but uh, certainly important to, to make sure that there's plenty of water for liver medications, uh, dealing with heat stress, just you know, if we want to, we want to restrict feed intake and slow them down, cut their water back, and not a good thing, and has welfare implications and so forth. So, um, yeah, to your point about uh, negative data, um, if a study is done controlled improperly, negative data is just as important as as positive responses, and sometimes that's a little challenging for graduate students to understand that. Um, you know, no difference is no difference as well. A non-significant difference can be significant many times. Right. Do you think some journal editors are also have that problem of rejecting sometimes negative or no risk, no response type of data? Sometimes, yeah. And I've had my share of that kind of data over my career, and and fortunately we've been able to get most of it published and, and try to make the case that if we did this right, knowing that there's not a difference is important to somebody. Yes. And I mean, if we look at the gold standard of uh, science, which maybe is a meta-analysis, well, for this to continue to be the gold standard, we need the negative, the non-response one, because if we just publish the positive one, then we, it's not right. Well, how many of our colleagues over the years have done literature searches or meta-analysis and that, and there's always these little statements in there about, well, this might be biased because we're only hearing about the studies that this worked and we don't see the studies where it didn't work. And 
goals are important to, to balance things out. Awesome. Let's transition a little bit to, to the work you've been you are doing on on, on cells and, and zinc uh, uh, and piglet survival. What did you find there? The zinc work basically started with an interest in fetal imprinting and the whole idea of what can we do to make uh, piglets more uh, higher survival, more robust, uh, perform better. And if we look at at the time we really started the bigger litters and greater variation in birth weights and low birth weight pigs and losing so many of those. So what could we do? There was numerous attempts at postnatal, how could we uh, deal with those low birth weight pigs with varying success. Our thought was, well, is there something we could do prenatal during gestation to set that pig up so they'd be, be better off um, after birth and through to harvest or, or whatever. We kind of stumbled across a paper by Jeff Vallee and his group at Clay Center in which they fed uh, zinc, I think it was um, like from day 80 of gestation on, last 30 days, something like that. Um, and they compared 150 parts per million of supplemental zinc to 280 parts per million with gilts, a small number per treatment. The study wasn't entirely designed for zinc, but the thing that caught our eye was in the low birth weight pigs, pigs weighing a kilo or less at birth, they cut the mortality rate in half. So they went from like an 80% mortality rate on those pigs to a 40% mortality. Still high, but no so we started thinking about that. They also, um, they also decreased um, stillbirths as the birth interval increased. So those longer stretched out farrowings with the zinc feeding, they had a lower stillborn rate. So all those things seem to suggest to us that, well, maybe there's something there that we should uh, we should investigate because we weren't aware of anybody else doing anything with it. And so we we designed a study to look at this concept on a commercial sow farm. So we had more numbers, multi-pair sows, um, and we had three treatments. We had their control diet, which is uh, 125 parts per million of supplemental zinc. We had an intermediate diet, which was about 240 parts per million supplemental zinc. And then that kind of matched what the, the Clay Center group did. And then we said, well, let's go higher. And so we added a third diet at 470 parts per million supplemental zinc. All the zinc, the supplemental zinc was from zinc sulfate. The, the control, the base diet had uh, 75 parts per million of zinc from uh, zinc sulfate and 50 from uh, zinc amino acid complex product. And so, um, to get that extra zinc in, we designed a top dress that the staff at the farm, fortunately, they were great collaborators. Um, they put either a quarter cup or a half a cup of this top dress on the sow's feeder boxes uh, from day, day uh, what were you, 75, I think it was, 80, through to till farrowing. And then we followed those sows post-farrowing, what was the, the mortality rate of the pigs, stillborns, uh, 
performance, so forth. And um, then we also followed a subset of pigs clear through to slaughter. So our idea was, well, maybe we can save those low birth weight pigs, but then if they're a drag on the system post weaning, did we really gain as much as we thought? So we followed some pigs clear to slaughter. And basically what we found was that um, zinc didn't really affect feral performance. Litter size, 13, 14 born live, 11 weaned in this set of pigs. Um, prevalence of stillborns and mummies weren't different across zinc treatments. Um, there was a, a significant um, effect on the middle zinc level, the, the uh, 240 parts per million added. Um, there was a significant reduction in the number of low birth weight pigs. So about a, a four percentage point difference, lower numbers of low birth weight pigs. But the thing that really, really caught our eye was that the pre-wean mortality of these pigs, of particularly the low birth weight pigs, dropped from 38% in the control cells to 28% in the high zinc fed cells. Um, we also saw a similar reduction in the heavyweight birth weight pigs. And that pre-wean mortality went from 7.5% to just over 3%. And we're not sure why that happened. Um, now when we followed those pigs on, clear through to slaughter, there's no differences in post-weaning mortality, um, no interaction between gestational zinc treatment and um, birth weight category for uh, growth rate, carcass lean, any of those things. So basically, if we saved that pig, it performed well throughout the system. So, so we had the, the work from uh, Jeff Belay's group said that added zinc in late gestation improved pre-wean mortality. We had our study and we had, we had about uh, 350 sows on the, on the trial, um, 4,500 suckling pigs involved in the study. And we see a similar trend. And so then we're starting to think that maybe there's something there and we have another study, hopefully starts next week, looking at the timing of that zinc. Because as soon as this data came out, um, some producers said, well, you just fed from day 85 to farrowing. That's kind of a pain in the butt for me to get that in the diet. Can I just feed higher zinc the whole way through? Well, we don't know. We didn't do it last week, right before farrowing, when sows move into farrowing, It'd be easy to, to supplement at that time with fewer numbers. Um, so hopefully we see the same, a similar response. And then we plan to take a lot more samples to try to understand why it's happening. We've seen this. And there's another study out there that suggests that it's there, but we don't know why or what the mechanism is. And so this next study, we're hoping to delve, drill into that. Um, you know, from an environmental standpoint, you say, well, feeding all that extra zinc is probably not a good thing. And we recognize that it's maybe not as bad as one thinks, but um, 
our idea is if we can understand why it's working and how it's working, then maybe we can get the same response without using the zinc, or we can use a more bioavailable source of zinc to um, get the same response and minimize the, the environmental impacts. Very interesting. And, and maybe even um, trying to figure out if we can reduce zinc a little bit in the last few diets before market, just because it's a lot of feed, just so our total amount of zinc maybe uh, will be okay, right? Um, at the same time, there's a few studies from Dr. Chad Polk. If you are using ractopamine, a little more zinc actually helped a little bit uh, there, but most people are transitioning out of that. Um, what I was going to ask you on the... I mean, this is very interesting. I, I guess what I was going to ask you, Dr. Johnson, is on the average mortality between the treatments, I know you, you mentioned, you know, by group, but um, on the combined um, mortality, was there a difference there or, or not? Uh, numerical difference okay. in overall. Um, the overall mortality, it was uh, basically from 15% in the control to 12% on the high zinc. Okay. There was a tendency there. That, statistically, that was a tendency. Tendency, okay. Wow, that's pretty good. And that's preventing mortality, right? Mortality, yeah. Wow. We tagged all those pigs at birth and had, weighed, had them weighed and then followed those through for those 340 some letters that were on the, on the experiment. So, um, yeah. And, you're well aware of the amount of work that that's involved in and hmm. all that. But uh, the farm staff was super. We worked with uh, Schwartz Farms in Southern Minnesota, and they've been wonderful partners on this. Very good, Dr. Jones. So I think um, transition a little bit into a more philosophical side of things uh, that I like to get sometimes is, is there something that you believe from a, could be from our technical area or even outside, but that you believe that many people would disagree. And, and the reason I like to ask this question is because that's the only way we, we move forward, right? Uh, if everyone agrees on everything, then we're gonna be here sitting equally in the next 10 years. So is there something that you believe? And I always like to say, uh, historically, when I looked at the data for bump feeding cells, uh, was very clear, like, doesn't sound like it's helping, but it's still up to this day, even though I think we've seen dramatic change in the last three years or so, still there are some people like, oh, yeah, we need to give a lot of feed in late gestation. Well, I strongly disagree with that. It just leads to body condition. So that's just some an example of, on my case, but is there something on your case? Well, yeah, from a, <clears throat> from a technical standpoint, I did work many years ago, um, farmers, all over will tell you, and one of my best friends is all a farmer, and we had this conversation just this last week, that um, when you get new corn, new crop corn in, the pigs eat better, they grow better, everything gets, life is good when you get new crop corn. I did, I think, three or four studies here trying to document that and could not. Interesting. I mean, people won't believe my data, but I have the data, and we can't learn that we had from last year that we stored here and then we had our new crop corn and we dried it to same moisture and we did studies where we um, stored corn at different moistures and then took the new crop corn and nowhere could I find differences in 
growth performance, pig performance with new crop corn. But every hog farmer will tell you pigs do better when you get new crop corn in. I'm, these are reputable people, respectable people, so I'm not going to call them a liar, but I can't get, I can't find that, that response. The only thing I can think of is maybe our old crop corn just hadn't deteriorated as bad through the years as in bigger commercial settings, but I don't know. Mm. And could that be, I'm thinking out loud here, but could that be in the case of why people might see that in production is just, just time of the year, like uh, winter, uh, higher growth rate or something like that? There's there's certainly some confounding factors there that are getting a, being attributed to um, new crop corn that aren't appropriate. I mean, aren't true effects. But I published we published the data. We got it out there and said, okay, here's what it is. But it's not something I'm going to build my career on. It's just we were trying to figure out if that's true. Then what is it about new crop corn? And could we do something to old crop corn or mid-year to make it perform like new crop was kind of theory going into it. Well, when we couldn't find a difference to start with, then we're kind of dead in the water. So um, yeah, that's one that I'll go to my grave saying, I don't have the data and I have never seen the data, but everybody will say it's better. And so, okay. Right. That's super interesting. Maybe like a, tail biting and, and salt, uh, because I, ha I haven't seen any data on tail biting and salt, but I think a lot of people believe uh, they check salt or sodium if you're seeing tail biting, but I, I, I'm not aware of data. I don't know if you know of anything on that arena. Yeah, we, we've done some work here with that more from a behavioral and social standpoint. Yushi Lee, my colleague here, has done a fair bit with tail biting, and we have not really delved into the nutritional side of it, but when you that so many factors that go in and people will tell you different things that that will fix it. And, um, you know, maybe it does in that setting, but it's maybe not broadly applicable. Um, so we, we found some interesting things from the behavioral and social standpoint of tail biting that one wouldn't expect whenever she mixed, mixed pigs. I think I have this right that, um, there was more aggression and tail biting amongst litter mates when they moved them from farrowing into nursery and finishing than if you mixed those litters up and had different pigs from different social groups. And wow. that didn't seem to make sense to me, but the right. data were that I think the litter groups would have it all sorted out and be a problem, but um, that wasn't the case. Yeah, that's interesting. Very good. Uh, one more thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Johnson, before we move to the three questions that I ask every guest, uh, is um, if you could write on a billboard that everyone around the globe would see it, what, uh, what would you write on that billboard? I would probably say something like, chill out. <laughs> uh, times that we're in right now, and whether it's the political climate here in the U.S. or pandemic or whatever, I it seems to me that just so many people are getting so watered up about in some time, in some cases, important things. 
Right. But a lot of times it's small things and it's like, take a breath. It's really that meaningful in the whole scheme of things and chill out. I like it. Yeah. I love it. I think, I think, uh, I don't watch news very often, but it, if I do a few days in a row, I start getting, uh, yeah. Uh, reaction, you know. I'm an old guy, so I'm not a big social media fan and I'm, I'm not on Facebook a lot or those things, but the stuff I hear and a little bit I see about people ranting and raving about this or that, it's like, really? Just take a breath and, and they didn't necessarily mean to slight you or whatever. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but um, it's a little bit like my mother used to tell me or tell my sister, I would always kind of needle and my sister and the reason I did is because she get worked up and make a big fuss about it so you just keep kind of you know sibling rivalry mother right. tell her, don't react he'll leave you alone and and I think a lot of the cases if we just kind of chill out and not assume that everything's going to be bad or out to get us we'll probably be better off but that's just no, I like it. I was just uh, chatting about this exact same thing today during lunch, which was, I back to the pandemic, I like to see the actual data instead of seeing what the news are telling. Like, I'm like, okay, yeah, there's a lot of noise, but I mean, the death, number of deaths are like plateau, depending on where you are in those things, but, you know. And no doubt it's, it's a serious thing. And it becomes more serious if it hits your family or your loved one, you know, but, um, from a population standpoint, you get a different perspective if you do your own numbers versus what the media is doing and what a lot of other people are telling you. And of course, that's to me a hallmark of graduate school and our training is you make your critical decisions on your own and look at the data and be, uh, be critical in your thinking. And so it is time to our famous three. an animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a stimbiotic targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, contact NAM at abvista.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. So the three questions, Dr. Johnson, that we'd like to ask every guest, the first one is what's your favorite uh, pig-related book or resource? Probably um, Swine Nutrition. The book that my mentor, Ellen Miller, uh, wrote the first one, and I was there in school and he was working on it and I saw it develop and then I uh, was fortunate to be able to write for a, a second version and uh, that has been, uh, I actually have on my shelf back here, I have a signed copy from Ellen Miller, the first version, so it's, it's pretty special to me. That's awesome. Yeah, great book. I love the way it's it's written. And um, cool. And then the second one is what's your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? 
I remember in um, high school reading uh, the book, and I, I'm ashamed I can't tell you the author, but All Quiet on the Western Front. It was a book about World War One, and uh, some of the soldiers and how they went through the war and what they saw, what they experienced. In one particular spot, this soldier jumps into a foxhole with a dead enemy soldier and then realizes that that enemy was a person and had pictures of his family and so forth. And that was very influential on me as a young person to realize, and since I've been been able to travel internationally some, realized that pretty much people are people. And there's a lot of the same fears and joys and so forth. And that book really, really brought that home to me. And uh, it's been reinforced in my later years too. So um, I'd say that that's probably the influential book for me. Wow, that that's cool, and and I think many many astronauts would say that's what they see from space. You know, not not a lot of borders. Yep, yep. Very cool. And then finally, is um, what do you think sets apart successful swine professionals from those uh, that are not? Well, I was raised work ethic, work hard, be be honest. You know, take your licks when you you need them. You know, when you screw up, own it and and network. I didn't learn the networking early enough in my career. I was kind of shy and um, that's really important. And people want to help you and want to want to um, support you. And as long as you're willing to reciprocate and, and be truthful and, and deliver what you say. So hard work and, and ethics. Uh, there's an old uh, one in this county has been very influential. He's passed on now, but uh, he would always say, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and a day to lose it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he came up with that or not, but that's words to live by as far as I'm concerned, so. So true. And that, there's another quote that I like is, the harder I, I work, the, the luckier I get. The luckier you get? You're right, yeah, I think it's Thomas. Edson or Jefferson, maybe I'm getting confused here. But yeah, the, the, the harder I work, the luckier I get, it says. It's a good one. Very good, Dr. Johnson. It's been a joy talking to you. Uh, appreciate uh, your insights today on water quality, um, zinc on sales, and also life in general. Good enough. I uh, appreciate the opportunity and enjoy the little podcast that I, I don't see all of them, but I try to see a lot of them. So uh, I always learn something. Very good. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven week long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.